Last week we began our time around these Advent lights with a reminder from God's Word uh, about why they burn, uh, about what God's primary message to us from His Word is this and every Christmas season. If you aren't with us, the reminder uh, from the first candle uh, is that God has a plan. Even when we don't understand, we have hope because of him. Christmas is the ultimate proof that God has a plan, that God is absolutely in control. And, and were we ever to, 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 were we ever to uh, understand every little detail of what he's doing or, or try to understand, we would not be able to. Uh, we couldn't comprehend. We couldn't grasp all that he's doing. There are times where we wonder, where is God at? And what is God up to? And, and what is God meaning with this? And how could God be in this? There are many times in our lives where we wonder, we question if God has a plan. Christmas showcases how God worked through the ages to set the stage for the Christmas story, how an entire season of uncertainty that the nation of Israel went through, how the story of Habakkuk reminds us that as the prophet of God, he was asking God, where are you at? How long, God, until you act? And he lived and he died without getting that answer. He and his generation endured and suffered, and it turned out that that generation, that season, was preparation for the birth of Christ when you see the whole story come together. God's strong arm and God's track record gives us hope when we are left overwhelmed by the world. If our hearts are anchored in him, if our eyes stay on the candle he has lit for us, we can find contentment, we can find hope, confidence in his promises, expectations that never result in disappointment or dissatisfaction. Now we've lit another candle and this one burns to remind us of another great promise of Christmas and that is the promise of peace. You know, I think it's hard to explain what peace is. It's hard to explain how important peace is on any level, even though we all would agree it is very important. If, you, if someone were to ask us, what does it mean to have peace? I think a lot of us would, would answer it by contrasting what peace isn't. Uh, as in, we'd explain what peace is by describing what we definitely know isn't peace. I hope that makes sense. It might be hard to explain what it feels like to have peace, But I don't think any of us have any trouble explaining what it feels like to not have peace. I mean, I I can say that emphatically. I don't know if I can always explain what peace feels like, but I can definitely explain what peace doesn't feel like. Can anybody agree with me on that? That I might not be able to explain to you, well, this is what it feels like to have peace in my heart. But I can absolutely tell you to the very detail what it feels like when you don't have peace and what it's like to not have peace because that's a terrible place to be a place that we know all too well. We're praying for God to give us peace, and we might not know what to ask for, but we surely know what not to ask for, right? I mean, hey, God, I don't know what I need to have peace, but I can tell you a few things that I don't need if I'm going to have peace. I can identify a few things that if you could just get rid of this, if you could just fix that or fix them, I would certainly have more peace than I do right now. I'm not going to get worse as a result. I know that. So any of us that might have a hard time articulating what, it needs, what we need to have peace, none of us would have any issue identifying what threatens or prevents our peace. And unfortunately, all of us know a thing or two about the absence of peace and what it feels like, don't we? This world is constantly taking aims at our peace. Uh, sometimes it feels like we're all on the threshold of finding peace, obtaining peace, finally getting that peaceful feeling that we're looking for. And at the cruelest time, or it feels so cruel at times, right when we think we're about to get where we want to be. The bottom falls out. This could be true for your personal lives, your 
families, your career. It could be true for your health, your relationships, your finances. I, I think all of us um, know what it's like to, to be so close to having peace. And then something happens, not to just threaten that peace, but to make it very sure that we won't have peace. And maybe we think to ourselves that peace is only for the movies. Maybe we think to ourselves, if you click that again, you can see the snow globes, the snow falling. I think a lot of us think to ourselves that peace is only for snow globes. You know, growing up, snow globes were very popular. I got borrowed this one from my sister. She has a whole shelf for them, full of them growing up. Uh, I think a lot of us, uh, we've, we've seen snow globes before. Christmas time, there's always popular seeing the snow globes and the Christmas scenes. But I think a lot of us, uh, we've looked at those snow globes before, and we, and we often think that the world's not that perfect. The world's not that perfect. You, you look into these things, and, and everybody's so happy, and everything's going as it should go, and, and maybe you have a snow globe on your Christmas tree that plugs into the lights, and things are moving around inside of them, or you just shake the globe, and you see the snowfall, and you see the scene on display, and it's so peaceful. You look at these things, and you think, if only I had one of these around my world. If only we were ensconced or in resin or glass. If only we were protected from all the junk in this world. If only we had something protecting us from all the things that threaten our peace. We might be just as happy as the scenes on display. You know, growing up, I'd always hear people quote the book of Job because in Job it talks about how he had a hedge about his life. And then I would think, do we really want to evoke Job when we're praying? Because don't you know what happens to that hedge? <laughs> and, and, and of course, we want more than a hedge. We want, again, we want to be completely protected. We don't just want a row of trees around us. We would love to have one of these globes around our lives, around our worlds, where we could have peace. You know, it's almost like I imagine heaven. Uh, no wonder it's so peaceful there because it's protected and separated from all the things that we're, expo that we're exposed to and that we are pummeled by again and again and again. But, but you know, that peace that we see in the movies, that peace that we see in the snow globes, protected from the rest of the world, that peace that we imagine there to be in heaven, that heavenly peace, wouldn't that be nice to have here on earth? But, but isn't that the promise of Christmas? Isn't that what Christmas promises us at the very core of the story? The angels in Luke chapter 2 verse 14 sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill, favor from God to men and women. You know, isn't that what we sing about? We sing silent night, the Christmas, uh, that Christmas means we get to lay our heads down at night and have an out of this world, that we get to sleep in heavenly peace. But come on, the only time we might feel like we have that peace is in services like this. It's in the Christmas season. It's, in, it's around Christmas Eve. We gather and think back to that first Christmas night. We feel a spark of it. We get a taste of it. But that's not how the rest of the real, the real life, our real life, that's not how the rest of our time makes us feel. Christmas gives us a glimmer of it, a taste of it, but that's not how every day goes. Even so, Christmas promises us this heavenly peace. When we read the scriptures, especially the ministry of Jesus, he made this peace available and, and would always bring it on the scene and bring it into situations where it otherwise looked like it was unobtainable, impossible to find. Probably the most powerful scene in one of the most tense situations that Jesus ever brought this heavenly peace into is the famous story recorded across the Gospels about Jesus calming the storm. We've opened up to Mark's Gospel, Mark's 
account of that story. It's found in Mark chapter 4, verse number 35. I want you to follow along with me. I want you to imagine what it must have been like that night as Jesus led his disciples into the eye of a storm. And I want you to listen to how they react to that storm. Because I think it's pretty similar to how we react to the storms of this life. On the same day when evening had come, he, held, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were with them also. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, and so that it was already filling. The boat was filling up with water. And he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow, and they awoke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care that we are dying or about to die? Then he arose, and he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? I gotta, I gotta, I gotta think, I want, I want us to lean into this. Have you ever found yourself wondering or asking, God, do you not care that we are struggling, suffering, or perishing? Have you ever asked that question? Maybe you've never thought you could ask that question. They asked that question. They made it out. So I think it's okay for you to ask this question if you feel like you need to ask it. God knows your heart. He knows what you're going through. It's okay to articulate and to, to, to uh, make known or, and vocalize your, your fears and your, your frustrations. Have you ever found yourself like these as they face this storm? God, do you not care that we are struggling do you not care we are suffering? Do you not care that we are perishing? And a lot of us live in this place. The thought of peace is almost laughable because how can we have peace? We're in the middle of a storm. And here's the thing that most of us would, would, would admit or most of us think. Most of us would say there is no path. There is no path to peace in the storm. See, when we, get our, when we find ourselves in a storm, we automatically begin to ask God, God, do you not care? Why didn't you keep this storm from coming? Why didn't you just leave us on the shore? Why didn't you take our ship the other way? I mean, if God is in control and he is sovereign and he is all-powerful and he's good and merciful and gracious, why didn't you just keep the storm from happening? So most of us would think there's no path to peace in the storm. But in the story, in the middle of the storm, that's when Jesus rises up, almost like he staged the whole thing. Now, that might make you uncomfortable to think that Jesus staged this whole situation, that he led them into the middle of a storm. He knew the storm was coming. Maybe he sent the storm. I don't, we don't know the details, but we have to imagine he knew what was going to happen. He leads them on the boat into the storm in the middle of the night. He goes to sleep. And I mean, I think, it, I think Jesus could have went without sleeping that night if he really had to. I think he could have pulled an all-nighter to help the guys out. But he chose to go to sleep so that they might have this reaction. Do you not care? Sometimes, here's the thing, Sometimes God knows when your heart is not where it should be. And God knows that sometimes you don't realize how disconnected you are from him. We don't realize we are not where we should be. And sometimes we have to be put in a situation where we will be honest. 
Do you hear me? Sometimes God has to get the truth out of us one way or another. And in this instance, they had already had doubts. They already wondered if God cared. They already had questions, but they had not made them known yet. So God leads them into a storm so that they would admit, we do not have peace in our hearts. It's not just now that it showed up, or it's not just now that we lack peace. We've lacked peace for a long time, but God had to get them to admit it. And sometimes the truth is the same for us. So he leads them into a storm so that they would admit, God, we question if you even care or not. In the middle of the storm, Jesus rises up and he says those words, peace, be still. The text tells us the waves calmed and the storm ceased, but there's something else going on, something deeper here. The, the little Greek word that Jesus uses here, it's one word where, where our Bibles say peace. It's the Greek word pa, which can also be translated silent or silence. Now, I don't know about y'all, but the waves aren't talking in this story. You follow me? The only people talking in the story are the panicking disciples who just ask, do you not care? So who is Jesus talking to in this situation? Who is he speaking peace into? Who is he saying peace be still to? Yeah, the waves calm and yeah, the storm ceases, but something else happens here that's more important. Not only does Jesus bring peace to the storm, he brings peace to their hearts because that's what this whole thing was about. It's in this moment that Jesus shows us the secret to peace. And I know this is going to sound so churchy and so preachery. I get it, but you're going to have to listen, lean into this for a little bit because we're going to unpack this a little bit more. The secret to peace is being still, being quiet, and trusting instead of panicking. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's the opposite of what is natural. My nature is why I panic. I don't want to panic. I mean, nobody wants to get upset. Nobody gets up out of bed one day and thinks, you know what, I can't wait to panic today. No, right? You don't want to deal with that. None of us want to deal with those emotions. They come out naturally, right? But what's this story about? Jesus calms nature, right? Isn't that what they ooh and all about? Who is this man that can calm the wind and the sea? Who is this man that can calm nature? And here we are saying, God, I can't help it. It's natural. It's my nature. Do you see what we're dealing with? Do you see what God is doing? It's not just nature around us that needs to be calm. It's our nature within us. And if God can calm the nature of the world, do you not think that he can calm the nature of us? the nature within us. You know, we sing Silent Night this time of year. I think we, when we dig deeper into the details of Christmas, we discover that the secret to peace that they had on that night, that first Christmas night, wasn't so much about their circumstances being perfect. I mean, we imagine the scene there and, oh, it's so perfect, it's so quaint. But it had everything to do with their decision to trust in God because whether you've ever thought about this before, and we're going to for the next little bit, there, were, there was a lot about that first Christmas night that didn't make any sense. If you really read into the Christmas story, there's a whole lot that doesn't make any sense about that story. 
Yet in spite of what makes no sense, there's this snow globe effect. There's this heavenly peace surrounding the people involved in the story. I got to tell you, it, the peop- if the people involved had not trusted God, if the people involved had, had not put their faith in God, they would have had anything but peace when you consider the twists and turns in the story, the challenges they had to navigate to even make it to Christmas, and what still lay ahead of them after Christmas. You know, even though most of us know the Christmas story, as the Bible tells us in Matthew and Luke, better, we, better, we know it better than any story we've ever heard before, truth, or, truth or, 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 or made up. We often still defer to this romanticized, sanitized, simplified version of the Christmas story. We, we often imagine things being so perfect as if there was no kinks, no worries, no concerns, no fears involved. For most of us, we see the stable, we see the manger, we see the people frozen in place that we see on display in our churches and on our front lawns. But the actual Christmas story is a whole lot more complicated than just that perfect little scene of people sitting in a barn. Consider how it started. I'd love for you to turn with me, keep a bookmark there in Mark, but turn with me to the traditional Christmas narrative, Luke chapter 1. I want to read through the text where Mary is informed that she's going to bring a baby into the world through the most unnatural of circumstances, the unnatural of processes. Luke chapter 1, this is the story where first we have Zechariah and Elizabeth are told they're going to bring a child into the world who is going to get the world ready for Jesus or ready for the Messiah. And then we have Elizabeth, um, her cousin uh, Mary, being met by the same angel who's going to tell her that she's going to have a baby. Now, the difference in Mary and Elizabeth is Mary, or Elizabeth and Zechariah had been married for years and years and years. They were wanting a child. Mary was not yet married and was not wanting a child or was not ready for a child. And and, uh, it would not make any sense for her to have a child at this point. So let's read, if you will, follow along with me. Luke chapter 1. 26, in the sixth month of the angel, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Having come in, the angel said to her, rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among or above women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And I cannot overstate this, that what came next did not fit into any category of what it meant to find favor with God if you were a teenage girl, not yet married. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great and you and will be called the son of the highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever in his, of his kingdom. There will be no end. Now, I got to tell you, the, the reason why we know that Mary didn't get any of that, that none of that even registered with Mary because Mary's response isn't, wow, that's what the Old Testament talked about. That's what we've been waiting for. Mary's response is, uh, 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 Mr. Gabriel, I'm still stuck on the behold, you will conceive in your womb part. Mary didn't get anything that came after that. You and I get to appreciate it. I'm telling you, all she got was you will conceive in your womb because her response in verse 34 reveals what she's hung up on. How can this be since I do not know a man? I am not yet married. 
And the angel says, oh, don't worry about that. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be will be called the Son of God. Don't worry, Mary. Something that's never happened before, never will happen again, will happen to you. Again, I just want us to appreciate the moment here that this would have been so, so foreign for anyone to hear, much less a teenager like Mary. Indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who has been called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Yet somehow, someway, Mary finds a way to respond like this. Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. The angel departed her. Now, we get the privilege of reading all this as, as it's been condensed. We don't know if there was moments of waiting, moments of wondering. We, we don't know the details. We just get to read it like it's presented. I, I want you to know this, that Mary was not some princess sitting in a castle looking out her window longing for some grand adventure to sweep over her life. She was an ordinary girl, by that I mean a very young teenage girl, betrothed as in an arranged engagement to a man named Joseph. Now, that's not to say Joseph was not a good man. He most definitely was, but this was not a love story. It may have turned into one, but this was a very clinical, uh, arranged marriage that poor peasant families did in the ancient world. For a young woman, you didn't choose your husband. Your parents found a suitor and chose for you. As vetted as they may be, you can imagine, ladies, this probably wasn't the most glamorous, celebrated season of life. You hoped it worked out. You trusted in God that it would work out. You had to lean on him and rely on him for peace. But it, it wasn't a beautiful love story like you might would imagine it to be. So imagine Mary's already going through that. And oh, by the way, an angel of God appears to her Think, and says things to her that she, you know, that she could never have been prepared for. I'm telling you, there's no way she could have been ready to take all this in. In today's world, maybe there's some people out there who are so self-absorbed that they would expect an angel to show up to them, but that's not how it worked back then. And, and heads up, if any of us ever find ourselves in the presence of an actual angel, you won't be taking pictures. You'll be like Mary, falling on your face before the Lord, hoping you don't die from being exposed to something so much big, bigger than this world. And that's why Mary was terrified. And that's why the angel had to say, do not be afraid, because she was very afraid. Can you imagine what Mary was going through? And oh, 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 not only did the angel appear to her, the angel starts telling her stuff that nobody would have ever believed. And, and I gotta say this, nobody would ever believe Mary if she were to go and tell people this in the moment. Mary, you're out of your mind. Angels don't talk to people, much less angels don't talk to women like you in a world like it was that where only men had authority, angels don't talk to you, Mary. She wouldn't have felt favored or blessed or special. She would have been terrified. I mean, again, ladies, how would you feel if an angel showed up to you as a teenager, not yet married, and said, oh, by the way, ready or not, you're going to be pregnant soon. I mean, for, for guys, we don't have any... We don't even know what this is like. We could never imagine what this is like. I mean, as afraid as you might be of what the angel said, how could you, how could you even go to your parents? What would, what would you even, how would you even start? 
In this world, if you conceived a child out of wedlock, you would be as good as dead. Listen, there's a reason that Jesus grew up and people always called him Joseph's son because Mary and Joseph did not know if they could share the story. The story wasn't shared until after he proved that he was the son of God. After he rose from the grave, Mary started talking, but nobody knew the origin story while Jesus walked. You never read the Gospels and hear people refer to Jesus' birth because nobody knew about it because Mary was afraid to tell about it. You never hear people refer to Jesus as the virgin-born son of Mary. You always hear him called Joseph's son because they were scared to death of telling anybody about this because Mary could have been put to death because clearly they didn't believe Jesus was God's son. They wouldn't have believed Mary was given this information. So they kept it very quiet, very private. I'm telling you, this was uncharted, uncomfortable territory for anyone, especially someone like Mary. Yet somehow, someway, she trusted God she had a peace about her that we had never seen before. I'm telling you, the words spoken over Mary were some of the most deeply debated and studied concepts in the Bible. No one can read verse 35 and claim to have a full understanding of what God was talking about. Yet in spite of all this, Mary goes along with it. But if you flip over to Matthew chapter 1, we're going to find out that though Mary trusted God, Joseph was not so ready to trust God. Translation, Joseph didn't believe her one bit when she shared with him what happened. Matthew chapter 1 verse 18 tells us this. Now the birth of Jesus was as followed after his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband or her husband-to-be, being a just man, not wanting to make her a, a public example, was minded to put her away secretly or to call off the marriage secretly. You know what that means? Joseph heard Mary tell him this and Joseph thought, that is the farthest thing from the truth. Clearly you've been unfaithful. Clearly you've been promiscuous. Clearly you've sinned against God and me. There's no way that this story of an angel and, and, and all that is true. Clearly you've sinned, Mary. But Joseph, wanting to be a good man, not wanting to shame her because clearly she's got some stuff going on emotionally because she's making up the story about an angel and about a, 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 the conception from God. How is that going to make any sense? Clearly she's not well. So Joseph thinks, you know what? I'm going to have to find some way to call this marriage off, tell her parents, and we're just going to make this as, as, as smooth as we can so that Mary doesn't suffer, suffer more shame than she's going to. Because if she is pregnant, and he believes she was pregnant, he just didn't believe she got pregnant the way she said she got pregnant. If she's pregnant, she's already going to suffer shame. She's already going to be put through a lot of stress and a lot of uh, uh, you know, shame. So you know what? I'm going to try to handle this the best I can. But what's the story go? What's the story say? While he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, for what? For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So again, Joseph didn't believe Mary. He wanted to call the marriage off. He was thinking that she had been sinful. He doesn't know what to do. An angel comes to him and says, hey, Joseph, don't worry. I mean, of course, Joseph was worried. I mean, wouldn't you be worried, men, if that was your story? We'd all be worried. 
don't worry, Joseph, and, he, and she's going to bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. I mean, no big deal. You and Mary are going to have a son, and his name's going to be Jesus. His name's going to be the Savior of the world. He's going to save people from sin. No pressure, Joseph. So after so all this was done, that it might fulfill which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. Then Joseph, being awake from the sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took, him, took, him, took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. And you got to think, people know People are watching, people are looking at their clocks, they're looking at the calendar. Mary and Joseph get married and they see Mary starting to show and everybody knows. Something's not right here. Something's not as it should be. But people were respectful. Joseph was a good man. People didn't think that Joseph and her had sinned. They just thought, well, surely she was unfaithful. So they lived in this kind of shame. They lived in this kind of shadow of this and they couldn't say anything again because nobody would have believed them if they told them. So I want you to think about this. How do you think Mary felt? Do you think Mary felt highly, highly favored and blessed when she, Joseph's telling her, I think I'm going to call off the wedding? Do you think she felt like God was with her when he was telling her, hey, I don't know if I can marry you? I don't think so. Do you think she felt blessed and highly favored when everybody was whispering about her being pregnant when they got married, knowing how strict the laws were in those days? I don't think so. And this brings us to the Christmas story that when you break it down, it definitely wasn't as peaceful as we make it to be. Caesar Augustus calls for a census. So that means you're going to have to go to your hometown and register. So Mary and Joseph are going to have to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem, 90 miles across the hills of Judea. Okay, ladies, how would you, um, how would you think being nine months pregnant on the back of a donkey riding four days and nights across the mountains? How do you think that would feel? Don't think it'd be that fun. Tad insult to injury, they get to Bethlehem and there's no place to stay. And we've talked about this before. Maybe there weren't any rooms. Maybe the innkeeper just didn't want to deal with the unclean nature of a birth having taken place in his hotel. So, okay, Mary, we don't have room for you in the inn, but you can go out back with the, bar with the animals in the barn because they're already unclean and you aren't going to mess up my hotel because there were so many ceremonial laws about cleaning after and it was very complicated. So the innkeeper doesn't want that in his biz building. So you can go out to the barn again, again, again. Mary, how you feeling about this? Blessed and highly favored, riding across 90 miles of mountains on a donkey. You can't, you can't even have the baby in a hospital. You can't even have the baby in a bed. You're going to go out to a barn. And then, and then things go from uncomfortable to unbelievable. Mary and Joseph have the baby. They lay him in a manger. And then, verse, then chapter 2, verse 13 tells us that the unthinkable happens. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, it says, the wise men come and visit Jesus, and, and then it says, after they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, arise, take your child and his mother, flee to Egypt, which is a long journey, stay there until I bring word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the child and his mother by night, departed for Egypt, and they were there until the death of Herod, which is about two years 
that it might fulfill which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, sent forth and put to death all the male children in Bethlehem and all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which, had determined by, which he had determined from the wise men. Can you imagine? Can you imagine this? You're checking out of the hospital. And you get a phone call. Hey, you can't go home to your nursery that you've just been all this time preparing. You need to leave the country. And there wouldn't have been planes or buses. There would have been caravans. Can you imagine that? The baby that was supposed to save the world just enraged a king and led to the massacre of hundreds of innocent babies. Roman soldiers weren't that attentive. If you think they only killed baby boys and if you think they only stayed within the parameters of two years, we're fooling ourselves. They didn't take any chances. Boys, girls, if you seemed like you were small, you were ruthlessly, unmercifully murdered because of that first Christmas. Can you imagine what Mary had to live with from that day forward? The guilt, knowing that she was responsible for hundreds of mothers having their babies ripped from their arms. I know this isn't the warm and fuzzy feeling you want to have on Christmas, but this is the Christmas story. This is what happened from beginning to end. And yet, the scripture tells us that Christmas would bring peace. And by all accounts, all involved, despite all the unknowns, all the uncertainties, all the unbelievable things that were happening, the scary, the cruel, the confusing, Mary and Joseph had peace. You know why we read this and we think, oh, that was nothing? Because they react like it was nothing. But if you and I would have been there, would we have thought, oh, no big deal. They're going to kill every baby in the, in, the, in the country. We'll just go to Egypt for a while. Would you, think, would you take that and say, oh, okay, I'll go? I mean, that would have been a big tragic thing. I mean, would you, we would have never reacted the way Mary and Joseph reacted because they had something that we just so, so infrequently ever get our arms around. They had a peace about them, a heavenly peace. Now, back to our story from earlier. You know what this tells me about peace? You know what it tells us about the peace that God offers us? Peace is not the absence of a storm, but an attitude in the storm. Because if you want to describe Christmas with a real world analogy, it was a whirlwind. It was a blizzard. It was a storm, a hurricane, right? From Mary's dealing with all that, un, all that unknown uh, announcement, from Joseph wanting to call the marriage off, to Mary having to take a, go across the desert on a donkey, nine months pregnant, having a baby in a barn, having to flee to Egypt, babies being killed. I mean, that's a storm if I ever seen one. And all along, Mary held together because she had peace. Peace is having Jesus with us in the chaos of this life. Peace isn't a snow globe around us. It's not bubble wrap. It's not perfection. Peace is the presence of Jesus. He's the common denominator. Peace is trusting that God has a plan and not panicking as things work itself out. If you go back to Mark 4, 
The passage begins with a verse that we often all just brush, we always breeze past. Before they ever get on the boat, Jesus says to them in verse 35, let us cross over to the other side. He tells them in advance, hey guys, we're going to make it through this. You know why we don't think about the Christmas story and all the, all the chaos and all the storms that were involved? Because we know how it ends. We know what it leads to. We know it leads to us having salvation. We know it leads to us having hope and peace. Because we've seen what God's already done. We know that God can work things out. Yet in, the, in our own storms, in our own seasons of uncertainty, we don't have the peace that we can have. But when we look at Christmas the way it happened, we see that we can absolutely find peace in the midst of our storms. If God gave them peace, there's peace available to us. Because he says to you and he says to me, we're going to the other side. We're gonna get through this. We're going to find a way. There is a peace available to us, a heavenly peace, if we can be still and silent and trust that Jesus has a plan. The Christmas story is proof. Now it would only be fitting that I wrote most of this sermon sitting in doctor's offices in a hospital the past week and a half. And when you're sitting in situations where you don't know what's going to happen, when you're waiting for results, the last thing you feel is peace. Right? So much could go wrong. So much did go wrong in this story, but Jesus was in the midst of it all. Years later, on the night that he would be arrested and accused and charged and murdered the next day, Jesus sat with his disciples and he said this, the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In the moments that you feel like you have no peace at all, in the moment you want to panic and you want to pull your hair out and you want to give up, you have to lean into the fact that Jesus has promised you, I am always with you. And there is a Holy Spirit from God, the presence from God that Jesus has said, I guarantee you, he will come alongside of you. He will remind you and here's what he reminds us peace I leave with you my peace I give to you not as the world gives do I give to you let not your hearts be troubled neither let them be afraid here's the here's the the reality that we don't want to admit is true we have to allow our hearts to be troubled we make a choice I know it's nature I know it's natural I know we can't control our emotions sometimes but here's what Jesus is saying let not as in You have to make a choice. You have to hit the brakes. When you feel like you're about to panic and you feel like you're about to lose hope and you have the absence of peace, you have to let not your heart be troubled because I have a peace that I will give you. It's not like the world gives. It's not of this world. It is my peace. You know what Jesus' peace is? It's the peace that came to that virgin Mary when she was terrified, but it carried her through. It's the peace that made Joseph not call off the wedding. It's the peace that held them together when they're traveling, when they're going to a barn to have a baby. It's the peace that they had when they were fleeing for their lives watching Roman soldiers drag mothers to the ground and yank their babies out of their arm. It's the peace that they had the entire time as they trusted God has a plan. 
I'm telling you, when you're in the hospital, when you're waiting on tests to come back, when you're waiting on somehow, some way for a bill to be paid, when you're going through a season with your family, when he walks out, she walks out, everything blows up, I get it. Peace is not anywhere to be seen or felt. But Jesus says, that's when my peace is most available to you. He faced the most excruciating moment of his life. He could have avoided it. He could have called angels to remove him from that cross. But he went through it because you know why he went through it? He's thinking about you. He sees you in your storm. He was thinking about those babies that were murdered by Herod. He's thinking about all of us as we go through these seasons of life where it feels like there is no peace. He went to the cross to die, to reconcile you to God, to give you peace that surpasses understanding. Jesus says after that, I do as the Father has commanded me so that you, so that the world may know that I love him, that I trust him. Rise, let us go from here. And you know what he's saying to us? You can't run from the storm. You gotta get up. You gotta walk toward it. It's not going anywhere. You gotta go through it. I know you'd rather it be taken away. I know you'd rather not go through the storm, but most of our lives, that's not how it works. You know why Christmas happened? Because Mary and Joseph went through the storm. They carried a baby through the end of it while many others lost their babies. Rise, let us go. Jesus says, guys, I'm not hiding from this. I'm walking toward the storm. I'm going to the cross and I have peace with me. When Pilate saw Jesus full of this peace, he said to his men, this man is crazy because nobody could face a cross and not be panicking unless you had a peace, not of this world. He didn't sit still when he knew God had a plan. He trusted. He, and, and you and I, we can't, we can't just sit around and wish that our lives were perfected and protected. We've got to rise up and face this life. But guess what? We don't face it alone. God is with us. Jesus is with us. And wherever he is, there is peace. We just have to trust him and what greater proof do we need than the story of Christmas? That silent night, that night filled with heavenly peace was so fragile and vulnerable as it turns out. But those involved kept their eyes on God's plan and that's why they had peace. That's the secret to heavenly peace. Keep your eyes on Jesus and know for certain he's going to keep his arms around you. And you can look down at his arms, you can look down at his hands and there are holes in them proving to you the baby that was born into that chaos would embrace the chaos himself one day, would be killed by it to give you and give me the peace that surpasses understanding so that you and I can lay our heads down at night when there is so much wrong in the world and we can have heavenly peace if you want that peace today it's found by looking up at Jesus and declaring that he has a plan he is in control would you join me as we turn our eyes and hearts toward him Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the heavenly peace that we've seen on display in the Christmas story thank you that you offer us that peace and Lord I know this is I know the real Christmas story, it's so raw, it's so, un, it, it, it's so full of so many twists and turns and, and we'd rather have the perfect little manger scene and think that everything was just going so smooth but the real truth of it is there were so many things that were not 
certain and so many things that would have been uncomfortable and unknown, yet you were with these, you were with Mary, you were with Joseph, you gave them peace. And of course, Jesus is their peace and he was their peace and he is our peace. Lord, I pray that you would help everybody here today, no matter what they're going through, whether they're burdened for someone else or they're facing something themselves. God, if they're lacking peace in some area of their life, would you help them just turn it over to Jesus and walk through the storm with him? Let him lead them through the storm, knowing that he alone is their peace. He is our peace. He is our peace because he is our Lord. And if he is our Lord, we have nothing to be afraid of and every reason to believe. Lord, would you help that one that's struggling today? Would you raise up that heart that's given up? Would you fill all of us with the peace of Christmas? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.